0: Welcome back to the Engineering Leadership Podcast. This is a special podcast takeover of our new show, Engineering Founders. If you like it, make sure you click subscribe on Spotify or follow on Apple Podcasts. Enjoy
1: let's say in a four month period, you check in with investors or founders that you're working with two or three times. Now what they have is not just one call to base their opinion on, but an entire story arc, right? That they can use to say, all right, in August, they were doing this. And by October, they already did this. And then by December, they were here. Like I'm now seeing sort of a preview of what I'm backing. And I think that that really helps founders sort of help investors make decisions, right? You're de-risking for them. You're sharing more of the milestones as you're doing
0: them welcome to engineering founders the show for engineering leaders making the daring leap to start their own company lizzie Matasov, ceo and co-founder at Quotient, shares her journey from harvard's dual degree grad program and innovation lab to founding quotient we cover how fundraising today is different than it used to be some strategies to help you fundraise in this new funding environment including concepts like how to utilize your relationship pipeline how to better incorporate story arcs into your pitch, and how to overcome pattern-matching bias. We also get into Quotient's major pivots, some of Lizzie's tips for not becoming too attached to your first idea. We get into the concept of idea-mazing and developing clarity as a founder. Let me introduce you to Lizzie. Lizzie Matasov is the co-founder and CEO of Quotient. Previously, Lizzie built software to improve access to medical-grade genetic testing at Invite. She was also a software engineering consultant at Red Hat, where she built software applications for companies across various industries, including fintech and biotech. About Quotient, Quotient is a toolkit to supercharge engineering teams. Their mission is to democratize access to the best engineering cultures. Today, their first tool is an onboarding platform that leverages behavioral research best practices to ramp up engineers more effectively. With Quotient, you can build and deliver a high-quality, research-backed onboarding experience and get data-driven insights into how your team changes and grows together. Enjoy our conversation with Lizzie Matasov. To roll us into our conversation, Lizzie, I think I just want to first say welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking your Thursday afternoon to hang out. How are you doing?
1: I'm, I'm doing so well. It's, uh, I'm sure you've heard that San Francisco got a lot of bad weather over the last few weeks. And this week, it is just more than making up for it. It's like beautiful blue skies. It's like 60. Everyone's out walking, enjoying the day and the weather and the air. So it is a great week.
0: I love it. San Francisco is such an enigma when it comes to weather. Closely related. My favorite quote, I think it's like the Mark Twain quote.
1: The coldest winter I ever had was a summer in San Francisco.
0: You got it. That's the one. I love that one. I say that all the time and talk to anybody. I know for our conversation, we wanted to talk about a couple things. Number one, your founder journey and some of the nuances and details and lessons you've learned. And the other side of it is is some of the, the frameworks or some of the tactics and strategies that you found valuable with how you've built Quotient. So we got a lot to cover, I guess to kick us off, can you introduce us to quotients and the origin story behind what you all are doing over there?
1: Our sort of broader vision is to democratize access to the best engineering cultures, because the best engineering cultures build the best products. So where we're starting right now is with the sort of GPS for new engineers. We're trying to completely reimagine the world of developer onboarding so that we can help engineers feel like they ramp up faster and increase that sense of belonging on their team. And we want to give managers the visibility to really understand how onboarding is going and to really understand their team with this sort of perspective that the atomic unit is the team, not the individual, and all those interesting dynamics and the human side of engineering that comes with it.
0: That's great. I So a couple of things I want to dig into there a, a little bit, because I think they're really interesting sort of perspectives or core philosophies that are guiding building out quotient. So you said the belief is that the atomic unit is the team, not the individual. Can you share a little bit more about what you mean by that and, and how that impacts quotient?
1: Yeah. So, you know, this is interesting because this is Kind of a well-understood idea across any team is this idea that you know as an individual, you perform some amount of work, but when you work in a unit or a group, there's a sort of synergy that comes from it, right? Like that extra sort of more than what you could do just as individuals. And so we think about that a lot. I think what's interesting about engineering teams, particularly when you think about how they operate, is that we've always sort of centered the engineering experience around the code that we write. And I think that's very true and very right in the primary job for a lot of engineers, but there's actually so much around the interpersonal dynamics, how you work with individuals, right? How you review people's code, how you work on architectural diagrams together, how you sort of use documentation to enable others to move faster too. And we've basically decided that as a company, we're always going to be thinking about the complexities of working with different individuals as the sort of thing we want to improve and enhance and sort of make better for every team, as opposed to optimizing on a purely individual individual
0: level. I, I think that's great. I've got, I've got some more follow-up questions about what you've been building behind that. But before we start getting into some of the like product elements, design mm-hmm. and strategy, I was hoping we could dive into your journey a little bit more because we've had a few founders join us for the show. And I would say the primary background and theme has been worked for a large SaaS company, then took time off and started a company. And that's been like a pattern. There's been a lot of different sort of nuances and flavors and perspectives there. But I think your, your background and story for how you arrived around... On the idea of quotient is, is very different. So tell us a little bit more about your journey and coming up with the idea of quotient there.
1: So I had worked in two jobs as a software engineer prior to going to graduate school. The first one was at Red Hat, where I was a software engineering consultant, which basically means you're a traveling software engineer. We would show up on site to clients, build applications and deployment pipelines for them, and then basically hand over the code and say, like, good luck, and then go on to our next project. That was an experience in rapid onboarding all the time, right? And you're being billed per hour, so the faster you onboard and start delivering value to the company, the better. So there's a big lesson there in terms of, you know, how to more effectively ramp up. And then the second job I had, I worked at a company called Invite. And that was a medical grade genetics company. I loved my time there. It was extremely mission driven. And I previously studied molecular biology. So actually, I don't have a traditional computer science background, I sort of just launched into the world of programming through a class I took in college and an open source company that I worked for on a Craigslist ad as a summer <laughs> internship, but getting to work and allowed me to marry sort of my background in molecular biology with that computer science piece. And that was great. But what I also saw was a company that grew insanely quickly, which is again, very similar to what you see in a lot of these hyper growth companies. Um, I watched our team go from like 15 to 20 to like 120 in a matter of a year and a half. And all of the interesting challenges that come from only thinking about engineers as like, units and blocks that you can just sort of stick together to increase output and efficiency, which I think is just a natural thing that happens when you grow really fast. So I sort of watched a lot of those challenges and pain points emerge. And I got very interested in understanding what are the bottlenecks that prevent us from building these strong, resilient, diverse engineering teams? And how can I basically find a way to solve for it? Because it's so real and it's so clear and we all see it. But when you start to try and dig into it, it just feels like everything you grasp at is not quite the right answer. So that's where I went on that journey of idea amazing through this space to try and figure out how do I solve these pain points in this world.
0: In a lot of ways, like I, the the vision I have is almost like you're this explorer or like cartographer of high performing teams is like kind of the image that comes to my mind is like you're exploring and assessing the traps, the dangers, the path forward that will help you know, get you to the the undiscovered land of high performance.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. I feel the same way sometimes internally as we're like digging through different solutions. And we're like, Oh, that didn't work. Okay, back it up, take the other route now. And I think that's just the founding journey is you kind of feel like you're always a little cartographer in this massive unexplored maze trying to figure out which way is the path to get to the answer.
0: So the, the part that I think is really interesting about your founder journey is the incubation of the idea within within your grad school experience. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience, getting a, a dual master's degree, and then getting involved in an innovation lab, and then the early incubation of Quotient. Bring us into to that moment.
1: Yeah, uh, it's a bit of a different path, I think, that I took towards building a company than what is traditional. I feel nowadays, there's a lot of really interesting pathways that sort of help you soft launch into the world of entrepreneurship, whether that's accelerators, incubators, programs like that, which are all fantastic. I knew I had this problem that I wanted to solve. And I was kind of at this crossroads where I could basically launch, go straight from engineering into entrepreneurship or I could basically find a way to incubate the idea while learning a lot and and still having some type of guardrails and I've never gone this far with uh, entrepreneurship at this time so when I was a kid I did a dog walking business with my best friend from childhood and and by the way she's now a second time founder so there was something there with this dog walking business in college I tried to start a company but we just didn't know where to start and it kind of never got past ideation phase and then this time I knew I had that sort of fire in me and that's you know we talk about it a lot passion for the problem not the solution so I decided like listen I'm coming from engineering there's so much in the world of business capital B that I don't know. I know how to build a thing, but what about everything else? And so I started exploring different opportunities to sort of help me soft launch. One of them was this graduate program um, at Harvard. It was relatively new it was in its third year. Um, it's called the MSNBA Engineering Sciences. And the idea is it takes very technical people who are very interested in entrepreneurship and sort of puts them through a two-year dual degree program where you're getting the MBA from Harvard's business school and a master's in engineering sciences from the School of Engineering. And the focus is, Like you take that engineering sciences master to what you need to learn for entrepreneurship I truly just like threw a dart <laughs> into into the I don't know black hole to see what would happen uh, but i wrote my essay on what became quotient i said that i'm passionate about solving this problem and I'm intending to solve this problem so you guys could maybe let me in here to do it or i'll do it somewhere else but it's gonna happen uh, which is so bold of me and also like in undergrad I went to a massive public school Ucla it was the opposite of great inflation like I was going in not in the in strong side of things, but I think it just goes to show like the power of passion and storytelling. I got let in, and and then decided like you know what this is a really interesting opportunity to learn business from kind of the world's best place to learn business, and then also advance some of that engineering knowledge and bring that all together into understanding how to solve these pain points around building strong engineering teams. So that's the story of how I got there. I spent two years there in Boston. I'm now back in San Francisco, but it was a really great experience. I iterated. A ton. The idea started from career discovery and building a tool to help folks understand where in tech they would find the most fulfillment and then basically matching them to like the right pathway to get there. It then evolved into a hiring platform where we basically were trying to prioritize capabilities over credentials. So on one side, we had an algorithm that was helping job seekers better position themselves for engineering jobs. On the other side, we prototyped using deep learning to more accurately predict people's skills from their resume And, you know, any traditional applicant tracking system would. And our hope was this two-sided tech layer marketplace could help us get closer to matching people. But then, you know, we started hearing rumblings of some of the internal sort of challenges and, and how a lot of culture building and engineering is really an internal thing. And oftentimes we just add more people to it. So we got curious, we took a step back and just like dug into that and that is how the form of quotient that exists today came to be.
0: I have so many follow-up questions about some of the, the, the pivot things, but I wanted to poke around into the, the grad school experience a little bit more. I think what's, what was really interesting was to hear how you wrote the essay on quotient, and then you were basically using everything to incubate this idea. And so I was wondering if you could share maybe like what parts of that experience did you feel helped accelerate the development of quotient? Or maybe what parts of that experience do you feel like you wouldn't have been able to have gotten, I guess, in a more quote-unquote traditional founder path? I mean, there is no traditional path, but give us a little more insight into like the unique elements there.
1: Yeah, so I think I would say I got so much out of this program because I came in with so much less. It's so interesting because I was not the only engineer that was at business school, but there's not a lot of us, right? I remember when I told my engineering team like, hey, I'm, I'm going to grad school and they're like, what? What, what, what are you studying? And I'm like, well, two things, actually business and like, I'm going to go into sort of an AI ML focus and engineering sciences. And they were like, sorry, what? That's crazy. So you don't often see a lot of technical people really diving into business school unless they plan to use that as sort of a launch pad into more like strategy and that side, which is completely fine. But I actually, it's my second essay, I had to write one about sort of entrepreneurship. And it was so easy, because I had this story. And then the second essay was like free form, whatever you want. And the second essay, I actually wrote about how I really think that we need to start broadening our view of what being technical or being an engineer is we have this archetype in our head of an engineer from Silicon Valley, the show, I am not an embodiment of that type of character. And I know many others that are not, but I think it's actually really important we broaden sort of our perspective. of what is an engineer because everything is being built on software and hardware and we need to start having more collaboration and communication across different industries and part of that comes with sort of thinking of people as more extroverted and social and I think oftentimes people put engineers in this box of like they don't want to talk to anyone like give them the noise canceling headphones so they don't have to listen to anyone else it's like that's not exactly it all that's to say I walked into business school saying I'm an engineer I'm sociable but I know nothing about how business works. And that's by design. I've been shielded from that because I have the skill set that nobody in business school has, which is how to code. And so I spent the next two years being completely immersed in that, but I had this idea in mind. So every class that I took, I directly applied it to the work I was doing at Quotient. And it was amazing. It was these fast feedback loops, quick applications of the stuff I was doing, you know, from understanding how to think early on about your product offering to, you know, eventually some of these, pricing questions, to go to market, to branding. I mean, things that, I mean, engineers just don't think about. And again, that's by design. So that was really awesome. My second year was much more free form. And so I pretty much took classes only relating to programming, AI and entrepreneurial like kind of operations. And so it was pretty much like I was working full-time at my startup and just getting class credits on the side for doing what I need to do already. So that was awesome
0: The direct application is is incredible. I think one other sort of trend like a sub experience here that I want to explore a little bit was the difference between the the dual degree program and how that helped incubate the startup and then the transition to the Harvard Innovation Lab the difference is there and how how each one supported you in a different way.
1: It's interesting. Harvard Innovation Lab is kind of this umbrella. It's basically an entrepreneurship hub for folks across all of the different schools at Harvard, from public health to engineering to medical school to the Divinity School. I mean, it's everything. And Mm -hmm. so they take in communities of founders every semester and basically support them through like just the tiniest bit of grant money to help you like- pay for ads if that's what you're doing or like random little things like that, a space where you can collaborate with others and then community, which I just cannot speak more about the power of community and entrepreneurship and how much that helps. So the iLab was really kind of like a support system along the way. And what I'll also say about my specific program is it's very small. I think there are approximately 25 to 30 of us that get accepted every year. And just about everyone plans to start a company. Half of them are doing it in that exact moment alongside you. And so again, it's that community element that comes in right there. So it was as if the program basically gave me like my close knit, group. And some of the programming in my specific program was very tailored to technical people building companies versus the iLab became this sort of like broader home to your entrepreneurial endeavors. And when, you know, classwork got a little bit lighter, you'd spend more time at the iLab. And I, you know, I still stay close to some of the stuff that's happening there right now.
0: I'm trying. I'm trying to connect some some lessons here that I think are really powerful from what you've shared. Because the 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 final question, kind of on this topic, before we jump into some of the other things, was like you know just your overall tips to maximize the experience to help you gain founder skills and gain an advantage as a founder. A couple that have stand out find a support system. I think the other one that it that shared was like, I I love what you shared about the direct application from what you were learning into the company. And so to me, it seems like you could read a bunch of different blog posts or attend all these different types of events of how to be a founder, but it doesn't matter unless you're actually applying those things live.
1: Yes, it's so true. And it's so much, you know, it's so funny. It's so much lower risk. I thought about it a lot. Like the worst thing that would happen to me while building a company at school is that I get two degrees from Harvard. And like, holy moly, that's huge. I mean, you know, for someone who's like a first generation American whose parents immigrated from Russia in search of a better life for their family, like I am already on track to doing something that is just such an astronomical accomplishment that I'll never take for granted. And so why not take a couple of risks while I'm there? And I found that exactly that, like while I was in these classes to say, I have this thing I'm really passionate about and I just really want to apply everything I'm learning. It made me learn more and faster. Um, It also got other people really curious too. So one funny hack about graduate school is you are sort of learning alongside some of the brightest people who are, you know, happen to be taking a two-year break from the corporate world, but are otherwise like very highly paid professionals. And so what what I would do is I would basically pitch people on doing their final projects and like presentations on my company. I would tell them like, "Hey, you know, there's a pricing class. You want to do like a, you know, pricing project on Quotient, and I had two friends who were like, "Sure thing, I've got nothing else." And these are like consultants at McKinsey who get paid a lot of money to do that work at other big Fortune 500 companies, doing their projects for me. So it was a great hack to getting some more work done, getting a little more output, and basically like multiplying myself through my classmates.
0: A huge hack! Oh my gosh, I that that seems like the low key hack to maximize the experience within within a grad school. Context. Yes, Um, it was great. Were there any other hacks?
1: my gosh, uh, signing up for every single possible student credit thing you could like GitHub has like a developer pack for students. I'm not even can't even begin to tell you how many AWS credits we found <laughs> lurking through the depths of the internet in part because of student status. It helped a lot. <laughs>
0: that's great. That's such a that's such a good tip. So it's like both like the budgetary thing, like the different student oriented discounts, and then the direct application for brilliant minds towards business. That's awesome. So I wanna wanna to switch to some of the pivots that you that you had brought up. And so I was wondering if you could if you could maybe call out some of the interesting or noteworthy pivots that you had to make to the product. And I think more more importantly, some of the frameworks or principles behind why you made those pivots or the the insights that drove those particular pivots.
1: Yeah. So we had two big pivots in the life of quotient. And when I think about it, it's really just the journey of idea amazing. And then there's sort of a defined moment where quotient as it currently exists came to be Initially I had been actually collaborating with a really close friend of mine on the idea of again how do you help reduce these bottlenecks to make these healthy strong diverse engineering teams and so we were thinking about this together and initially we started with career discovery our question was well is the issue around you know not having diversity and and sort of diverse perspectives in engineering teams maybe something to do with people knowing that this pathway exists for them this was a little bit you know a f- Three years ago, two years ago. So, just around the time that coding boot camps were really sort of at their peak popularity. And so, what we did is we built this sort of smart assessment that would help take your sort of favorite and least favorite tasks to do at work, sort of what energized you and what drained you, and map that to different career paths that you could take. And then we built this resource repository. So, like the three to five first reads on any role that you were looking at. And we were trying to solve some of the pain points around tech being a black box for people, um, especially as, again, the tech industry is growing and growing and growing in popularity. And it was really interesting, but it is very difficult to sort of monetize in that space. It was something we were always thinking about. Um, I think the hard part about working with career switchers is like by design, they're sort of putting themselves in a really vulnerable position. And so you would rather offload that sort of cost of delivering this service to the companies that will benefit, from these people, but it's kind of a, a tough model to do in B2C. So first lesson there was around just understanding your market, understanding who's paying and figuring out what's the best way to sort of grow a business there. We kept all of those resources up actually. So people can still access this you know, survey. They can still access the career assessment and people still do by the thousands, which is really cool to see that, you know, our work didn't go for nothing and people are still getting support through that. So then we started moving downstream, right? We thought, okay, if this isn't working, maybe let's get closer to those, Companies, right? Maybe it's not about helping people start that pathway of getting to that next job. Maybe it's actually about getting closer to connecting them to the right opportunity. And this is a really popular topic, I think, in hiring around how do you better hire for skills and capabilities rather than credentials? You know, pretty much any ed tech company is thinking about this right now. And so then we were there as well. So we started experimenting with different ways to basically, on one side, help candidates better position themselves for jobs, better reflect their skill set in a way that'll help them stand out. And then on the other side, helping companies, again, find those candidates more closely. A lot of times it's just a robot that screens people. And so they don't even know who they're missing, right? And so we built sort of that two-sided technology capability layer. We tested it out a lot. And the lesson two is I think, you know, I, I love working with people. And so I spent a lot of time with the job seekers. It's such an empowering place to be to help people find their next job and help them chart the course for their career. But again, like as a business, you do have to be thinking about how does this grow and scale in a way that's profitable. So when we started working with the companies more, what we started hearing from them is really around like, yes, they're having challenges hiring. It's an absolute disaster out there. But when we started asking them like, what is so difficult about this experience, right? They would tell us, we're just looking for a 10X engineer. You know, We just need one. I was like, oh, okay. So why? Like, Start digging into that. And they would say, well, it's just because everything is broken. And I'm straining my senior engineer already. And we're understaffed. And I just need one incredible person to come in, who is day one ready, right? We heard that so much. We thought, what does day one ready mean? And they're like, it basically means that they can skip onboarding. (laughs) We were like, okay, so tell us more. And it was that curiosity and that thread that we started pulling on that made us realize that onboarding is a process that is, it's across every single engineering team, you have to have it. And it is the most unstandardized and chaotic process that costs a lot of money to leave broken. So that was the thread. And as soon as we hit this and started talking to more companies around their experiences, we felt a pull that we had never previously felt with other ideas. And founders talk a lot about that sort of market pull. We started hearing from more and more companies about how, yes, this is a disastrous process. We write off the first three months, but we don't put it in our cost projections. And now our product team is really mad at us because our engineer is not ready for work yet. And all of our product projections assume this person's ready. And then they actually leave after a year year. So the kind of hire was a loss. And then it takes more time to hire them. And it was just this cycle of Distress.
0: Such a relatable breakdown of that timeline, by the
1: way. <laughs> I know. Yes. Like I, and again, like I have been on interview panels. I have been the person that supports someone as a buddy. I have totally seen the breakdowns of bad onboarding, and so I thought this is it. Like this is that opportunity. And if I want to solve the challenges that help, you know, ha- how can we basically build those strong, resilient, diverse engineering teams and democratize access to the best engineering culture? This is where to start. So that is where Quotient, in its current form, came to be.
0: Incredible. I think (laughs) I I just, I'm like, I'm like, I'm optimizing for like as many questions as I can ask as possible because I'm so, I get so excited about, about just the little lessons underneath all of this. It's so cool to see the evolution of the idea and when sort of those aha moments or that pull moments happened into those different areas. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community.com. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I, th- I think one of the things I've heard is that it can be really easy to, to become attached to, to your first idea and to sort of have that the confirmation bias where more of the interviews are confirming that that first idea is right. Can you talk a little bit more about like your approach to not being attached to those early ideas, To create the space for some of those those really important defining insights to to show up.
1: Yeah, it's funny, because entrepreneurship is a lot about execution, and you know, getting those insights and having that curiosity. And then it's also just a lot of luck, any founder would be fooling themselves if they didn't think about the role that luck has played into some of their work. And that's why you sometimes see like, you know, Facebook, for example, being the product that it is just being kind of this silly idea that blew up into meta, which is an incredible story, but is actually not how I would say probably over 90% of companies go um, on their search to product market fit. And so I think that for founders, it's really, it's really a making it very well known that this is actually a normal and expected part of the entrepreneurship journey is huge. And it goes back to community, right? When you start talking to more founders and meeting more founders, you hear stories of pivots that are like all over the place. I mean, Slack is a great story, right? Like they built a game, the game fit the chat within the game turned into what we know now it's incredible but it i think when when we start to sort of normalize this idea that pivoting and and failing right technically it's a failure is actually not just okay but Necessary and important, that's when we start getting more comfortable with this idea of chasing after the right solution to a problem rather than chasing for a problem to fit this solution. And I actually find that in engineering, folks that come from engineering and more technical fields into entrepreneurship, this is a big transition in thinking for them as well, right? Because we know how to build things, right? So we get something off the ground that we think is really cool, and now we're just looking for a problem for this really cool technology. I think we'll see right now is a really interesting period of time time for technology advancements particularly with AI and some of the advancements that have happened thanks to OpenAI and a number of great companies but you got to start with the problem and that is the thing that you hold strongly to the solutions are fleeting and they will change so many times
0: absolutely tactical question for you a little bit of a shift still within the pivot space what is idea amazing and how does one do it
1: yeah i think that idea amazing was popularized by Andreessen Horowitz. Although it's funny, I had never known that until I you know, had spoken to a founder friend. And this is just something that we have been doing this whole time is like, we're just, you know, cartographers on this journey, we've got a map, I don't know, we know a couple of things, we're gonna go check it out. But the broader sort of idea of idea amazing is really about sort of starting, starting somewhere and then getting into this mind space where you're on a journey to look for the idea that solves the problem at hand. And I think the first step to idea amazing is confirming the problem is real, right? And it's happening for people. Some people will look at like adjacent industries. Some people will look at ways of sort of identifying that problem. And then they'll basically start sort of coming up with a hypothesis for that solution and start testing it out, right? I think it's very hypothesis driven. And the other thing that it does is it breeds that sort of resilience and curiosity from an early stage. Because if you think about your journey of entrepreneurship as one of idea amazing, as opposed to one of sort of validating a single idea that you might have, you start to become really open to the possibility that things might change a little bit, but they're still on this journey to solve this problem. And so tactically, what that looks like is a lot of hypotheses A lot of experiments to sort of prove or disprove and doing so quickly like we have done so many prototypes where the back end is literally nothing it doesn't exist it just looks like a product that might work in public because we want to get it into people's hands and test if they're willing to use it we've done pilots where we did a very 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 slim down version of our product offering just to prove that this problem is real and if we solve it it's a high roi for companies Um, and so that's kind of the mindset is like can you be quick about discovering if you're on on the right path, or if you need to switch to a different path on this maze of exploration.
0: The freedom that I feel like that enables in those early days just feels really present.
1: Yes, it is. It is true. And I mean, failure is still really hard, right? Like the first idea, I was so excited about it. And then it didn't work. And you really do like you have a little bit of a slump. You're like, shoot, turns out I'm not like a wonder kind who can come up with the idea and just like get on the rocket ship. But I think that now having experienced it, I think every founder should be forced to pivot once because it really makes you basically have to contend with how badly do you want to solve this problem? Because the journey of entrepreneurship is five, 10 sometimes 20 years, like you've got to really want to be on that journey the entire time and not just because you got lucky the first time.
0: You heard that listening. You've got to get the pivot notch on your belt in order to be considered to get your badge, your, your founder badge. I get love the that. gold star. <laughs> <laughs> So one element that I, I wanted to make sure that we covered was some of the lessons and experiences you had around fundraising. And so I was wondering, first off, can you, can you just share a little bit about I think like wh- where you're at in the fundraising process, just to kind of set a little bit of that context. And then some of the things that many people have been told are true, but are no longer true. And some of the things that you discovered are more likely true about the fundraising experience now.
1: Yeah. So just to give brief context, we successfully ran and closed a pre-seed fundraise last fall, which was a very interesting time. This is fall of 2022, which was just after the market sort of really crashed. A lot of funding sort of retracted, a lot of conversations around dry powder and when VCs are going to deploy it. And basically the cost of capital was no longer zero, right? So if you fundraised in 2021 or maybe even 2020, there was just so much money in the market and the sort of rules of engagement in fundraising had really evolved to be very different than what they honestly are today. And so we were in this weird position where we had basically like prepared to start our fundraising process with all of these sort of tools and all these lessons that we got from our peers that had just gone through it a few months earlier. And it felt like the rug just got pulled right out from under us. A lot of those things are things I'm really okay with. I had a lot of anxiety about some aspects of fundraising and some of the sort of expectations and assumptions that founders were taking on that we were all just cool with that I'm happy to dive into, but it changed right in front of us. And we kind of lived through the sort of shift in mindset around fundraising as we went through our process.
0: You mentioned the expectations and assumptions that you were, was it okay with letting go? Um, I was wondering if you can dive into those a little bit more.
1: For for one, like the bar has changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's been really manageable and possible to raise without you know, they joke, raise on a pitch deck, um, without having built a product. And that was not our position. We had run a successful pilot, basically proved now a number of assumptions that we wanted to de-risk before we even decided to become a venture backed company. But for a lot of people, that was a big shift, right? At the pre-seed stage, you now really do need to show a product and sort of some assumptions that have been validated, hypotheses that have been tested and a plan to move forward. That was a really, really big one. And then I guess some of the sort of ideas around how to go about the fundraising experience. I think it's just not as easy as it used to be and money doesn't flow as quickly. And so you sort of have to get a little bit more creative, more resilient about it. And fundraising was always hard, but I think it's just been made a little bit harder and also forces founders to just think a little more deeply about if this is the right path, which I truly believe is a good thing. You know, venture capital is not for every company. It is one style of growing a successful business. um, And it's also one that has a lot of important uh, things to consider, like like your rate of growth and sort of what trade-offs you're going to be making for your business, right? To achieve those returns that you and the investor together are agreeing on.
0: One of the things that I thought was interesting, some of the stuff that you had mentioned around patterns versus individuals and sort of how to proxy some of the pattern matching that folks do with investing.
1: Yes. Uh, So this is something that I had noticed a lot as well. So in great times, it's just, it's easier to take riskier bets on people, on ideas. And that's great. Like a lot of those risky bets pay off. And I actually think they're really important, but some of those risks are not just around like the idea and the market that you're existing in. It's also like patterns of success that we've seen, right? Uh, This is where like pedigree sometimes comes in. And so what I had found is that in the return to a slightly more constrained market, VCs need to de-risk more. And so they often back patterns that they see that have some amount of repeated success. And quite frankly, that sometimes turns out as like, ah, we've seen a founder that looks like this, acts like this, talks like this, who was an absolute unicorn founder. We're gonna start thinking more about backing those types of people. The unfortunate consequence is this can have an impact on diversity. And, you know, the numbers are yet to be seen of how like this past fall and the sort of future in 2023 are going to play out. But, you know, as an example, I am a woman that is in the developer productivity space, building a technical product for engineering teams. I am definitely not in the majority of founders in the space. Um, and I knew that going in there. And so what that meant for me is I had to have as many data points as evidence of my success and ability to sort of execute and change perspective quickly and learn, then maybe I would have needed Needed to in 2021. I also think that because of that, you know, you might still see occasionally a founder raise on a pitch deck, right? If they represent sort of a background that is identical to something they've seen success with, they'd often be willing to take that risk because it's a pattern they've seen before. And so, my advice to founders that are fundraising in this time is just collect as many data points on your ability to execute, to lead, to learn, to grow, and you know, put those all out on the table instead of just kind of hoping and expecting that, you know, VCs will be able to de-risk on your behalf.
0: One other practice that I thought was really interesting that you had shared in some of this background research was how you also demonstrated the milestones and shared some of the the things going on with Quotient along the way. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, providing proxy of progress to help overcome that, that pattern matching bias?
1: One of the ways that you can really do this, again, as you said, having some sort of milestones and being able to show people more of a journey of how you've learned tested experimented is just critical in this time right and you know oftentimes when you're meeting someone in a first call for a vc pitch like you've got a deck 10 minutes and then like some questions and it's just not enough and so uh one of the styles that i highly recommend is this idea of a relationship pipeline so basically if you're going to go out and you know fundraise for your startup start thinking about that like six months before you go for it, if you have the privilege to do so, start talking to not just investors, investors, founders, anybody in the space, just to get their perspective and to share your progress. And what's really incredible is if you, let's say in a four month period, you check in with investors or founders that you're working with two or three times. Now what they have is not just one call to base their opinion on, but an entire story arc, right? That they can use to say, all right, in August, they were doing this and and by October, they already did this. And then by December, they were here. Like I'm now seeing sort of a preview of what I'm backing. And I think that that really helps founders sort of help investors make decisions, right? You're de-risking for them. You're sharing more of the milestones as you're doing them. And what's also really great is that, you know, the, the incredible thing about investors is that they see so much more you know as a founder you have a very narrow perspective on the world because you're basically putting all your eggs in one basket and so it's actually you know i've i've made some really good relationships with VCs over the last few months and years where i love checking in with them to say like hey like from my like narrow vantage point i'm here and i know what my competition is all around here if we zoom out 20,000 feet what does the world look like to you right now like what are you guys thinking about and it really just helps you get that zoom out zoom in perspective that I think is really critical for early stage founders.
0: I I love the idea of building your story arc and creating those data points to provide more evidence around your ability to execute as a founder in the face of sort of that pattern matching bias. Can you share maybe like a specific example of the story arc with Quotient and maybe how that then impacted one of the investors that you're working with? And you don't have to like get super specific about that, but just like how the story arc impacted sort of that experience.
1: Yeah, I can give sort of a specific one and then more broadly, but specifically, actually the lead investor that we worked with, she was privy to some of those complicated decisions around pivoting. And so she actually saw, like, I think we started talking about it probably in like late 2021, all the way through middle of 2022 when we made the official pivot into the world that we're in now. And I think that helped so much because when it came down to talking about working together, it didn't feel scary at all to embark on this 10 year relationship with this lead investor, because we've already been on a one year adventure together, you know, kind of watching my story unfold. it's kind of funny, like, I don't even think I really did like the formal pitch process with this fund, because I'd been, you know, unknowingly pitching this entire time by just letting her into my brain as we were experiencing hard decisions. So she knew how I execute, how I make tough decisions, um, and how I sort of learn from that and grow and, and speed of sort of progressing. So that was a great example of like, just how that relationship pipeline really works. And then one of my angels said this really amazing quote that really changed my perspective around fundraising, which is that fundraising is really about... Building relationships and the money is kind of like a benefit to it. Obviously, you finish fundraising, quote unquote, and there's like the you know, the related outcome is money. But she talked about how fundraising is about the relationships you're building, the money is some comes as a result of those relationships and i saw this happen firsthand because a number of the angels of our company i did not pitch to them they found out through back channels that we had started formally fundraising and they said hey 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 whoa whoa we've been a you know we've been talking for a few months like can i please be a part of your journey because i've already been a part of your journey and so now i just want to make it formal and get your stakeholder updates we were like <laughs> okay sounds good so you know it really came to be across a lot of dimensions that the relationship pipeline was what did it for us.
0: I really appreciate just the specificity and the granularity in which you're able to share some of those things, because I think that can be where the the mystery can be for a founder who maybe has never fundraised before. It's like, what does that actually look like to build relationships in that way where there is, you know, A financial stake involved eventually, but how to do it in a way that really has good integrity between the mission of the business and the relationship with the support and partners there.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So one of the topics I really wanted to dive into was... Your perspective on the need for founders now more than ever to have extreme clarity. When I saw that in some of the background research, I, that made me nervous because I'm like, well, you know, there's like some inherent mystery about like the early stages of being a founder. Like, does that mean that we can do that? I don't know. And so can you, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about why founders need extreme clarity right now and your approach or what you found to be helpful in helping create that extreme clarity in a way that helps support that fundraising process.
1: Yeah, it's funny because we're in a very tumultuous market environment. And who's to say that things are going to recover in six months, in a year, who knows? And so in some ways, it is comical to imagine creating a plan when everything could change in an instant. But I think that is actually part of one of the hardest things about entrepreneurship is you need to create clarity for yourself and be laser focused on a plan. And so I think what's different about now versus maybe one or two years ago is clarity was always important. But I think what founders need to consider nowadays is how is your plan subject to change? And what are you going to do when that happens? And so the way that I always thought about it is the Short term and the long term vision, right? So, what are you doing this year that is sort of achieving a short term goal for you? How does that play into your longer term goal? And then if things change in the short-term goal, like how are you planning to adapt to it? Because I think now it's not a question of if things change, it's really gonna be when things change, when things rebound or if they get worse, right? So I think the big question really for founders to understand is how do I adjust in this sort of crazy time so that I can keep learning and testing? And so the sort of advice that I give is that there's often discussion about the vision slide, right? For us, we say we're democratizing access to the best engineering cultures and we believe that those are the ones that build the best product. And that's our sort of North Star vision is that every company can do that. So what are we doing this year, our focus is on engineering onboarding as like a huge opportunity for us to help impact company culture and engineering culture. And that means that we're testing certain specific things. Now, what we need to know is, What's our sort of plan to test right now? How does that tie in to sort of our big mission? And then if things change, how are we going to actually adapt our plan, right? So maybe we end up figuring out that there's a better way to help managers and engineers sort of solve and improve their engineering cultures. But we just have to be ready to change at a moment's notice. And I think entrepreneurship was always about the sort of spirit of chaos and doing what you can while being under-resourced and with less information than you probably should have. But I think nowadays, it just requires a little bit more thought so that, you know, an investor or someone who's potentially thinking of putting money into your company feels confident knowing that when things change, Lizzie's got it figured out, right?
0: Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, for me, like, if I have a framework, I can execute on a framework. Like that is, that is where I feel a lot of confidence. And so just understanding even just the phrasing of like, this year, our focus is on this, that means we're going to be testing why. And so this is our plan now. And if things change, this is how we're going to pivot or address that. And I think that gives clarity. But 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 it also gives flexibility because it gives a sense of like how you're thinking about solving the problem and how the direction can change.
1: It makes it a little bit less daunting too, right? to know if I can answer these questions, not only is that great for investing conversations, but for myself, I feel like I have a good handle on how to build in an otherwise crazy time. They say it's the best time to build right now. And I really, really believe it, right? We're seeing behaviors and fundamentals change in front of us. And I just think you need a framework and a plan and a plan B and maybe, a C to change things. So you're still looking for that broader vision to solve for.
0: I really wanted to, to bring up the naming change. I know that you all have been sort of ruminating around around a name change. Can you share a little bit about that and what that has been like with the, the debut of the new name Quotient?
1: we have been thinking about a name change for a little while. The name we were previously known by Pathlight has been something that actually stuck with us since the very beginning. It was kind of like a, ah, it's a filler. It makes sense. I think that name came from the very first iteration two pivots ago. Uh, And now that we're in this space, it just doesn't feel like the perfect fit for us. Um, And so we just started thinking about, you know, what's a name that kind of better reflects our identity. And the word quotient has been just a really great fit for us. The word quotient there's a division sort of math folks in the group might be like division. I think of that. <laughs> that is one definition. The other is, a degree or amount of a certain quality or characteristic, right? So what is your confidence quotient? What is your empathy quotient? And that just meant so much to us because our entire intention is to improve an engineering team's effectiveness quotient, right? And how do we do that? We come at it from different angles, from the sense of belonging, from productivity, from overall happiness, from the connections between peers, their ability to work together. And so the word quotient kind of spawned out of this idea of wanting to find a word or a name that better defines our desire to help teams grow into their best selves. And that's where Quotient came from.
0: Beautiful. That's an incredible, an incredible story. And I I really appreciate just the layers of meaning and the alignment with the intent and mission, because I think that's really hard to capture in a single word. So I really appreciate everything that you did there. And I understand this is a big expression of the things that you care about most. So I hope you feel really proud about what you've been able to create there.
1: I sure do. (laughs)
0: Awesome. Well, Lizzie, we have some rapid fire questions if you're ready ready to wrap us up with them. Okay, what are you reading or listening to right now?
1: Okay, so I just finished a book. It's called Shantaram. It was recommended to me actually through Twitter, and it was just phenomenal. And then now I'm jointly reading two of the most polar opposite books of all time. One is The Big Short, and then the other is The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. So I've got some on the finance side, and then some on the sci-fi side. And I'm just loving jumping into these two different worlds.
0: Fantastic. I love the the idea of of stretching your brain and all of the different <laughs> dynamics of it. So you'd mentioned, you know, finding support and finding community. I was so I was gonna ask you like what founder resources have you found to be most helpful? I imagine that support and community has been a big part of that. So you can share that or if there are other ones, would definitely love to hear them.
1: Honestly, my answer is community, people. There aren't enough blog posts in the world to cover the many twists and turns in entrepreneurship. And then also results vary with everybody's experience. So I think what's amazing is the founder community knows it takes a village, which is why if you're a founder and you reach out to another founder, you often find that they are so generous with their time, even as the busiest people ever, because we all know the power of community. How do you diffuse stress? I love art. My social media account is probably like 10 to 15% my friends and then like 85 to 90% just different forms of art, whether that's fashion, interior design, fine art, different types of mixed media. I think startups are obviously their own form of art and science, but that's a part of me that I've always really loved. And I find that when I am a little bit too overwhelmed in my work world, I can really just dive into this world of creative expression. And I feel really relaxed. The other one I'll say is exercise. I'm a terrible runner, and I have gotten a little bit better at running this year. And it's great to couple lofty goals like build, you know, a a massive enterprise that completely changes the engineering world with a goal like run a 5k. Suddenly the second one seems so much more doable. So I did in fact run my first 5k last fall and have now just been steadily working my way up.
0: Love it. Wow. I love the again, just bouncing back and forth across the (laughs) hemispheres. That's awesome. Last question, Lizzie, is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now?
1: I don't think there's any one quote that like, you know, has been the drumbeat to my whatever anthem. I don't know what the right saying is there, but a quote that I think about often is one from a book called A Gentleman in Moscow. Uh, and the quote is something along the lines of, what matters in life is not whether we receive a round of applause, it's whether we have the courage to venture forth despite the uncertainty of a claim.
0: A powerful way to close off our conversation, Lizzie. Thank you for just guiding us through this world of your story, the, the different pivots and what's informed those and updating, I guess, some of the fundraising truths that are out there. I think that was incredibly illuminating and just everything that you've shared about relationships and how to how to help proxy some of that success to help folks in that early fundraising experience is really powerful. So Lizzie, thanks so much for an incredible conversation.
1: So happy to be here. Thank you, Patrick. This was such a joy.
0: Thanks for climbing aboard our pirate ship of engineering founders. Make sure that you click subscribe on Apple podcasts or follow on Spotify. So, you know, when our first few episodes get released and if you want to connect with other engineering leaders who are interested in starting their own companies or who've already made the leap, we're building an engineering founders community. We'll be hosting a ton of virtual meetups, sharing resources, and lots of other fun things to support your founder journey. So if you're looking for support, sign up for updates at elc.community. That's elc.community. And we'll see you next time.